BET is the global meeting place for the education community. A trusted brand with more than 30 years of heritage, the BET series promotes the discovery of knowledge and technology to enhance lifelong learning. And what is the future that we want? Do we want a future with with greater inequality? Because, you know, we know how to get there. We know how to create greater inequality, and we're actually pretty good at it. And we can continue doing what we've done for the last how many years and, and create a society that has even greater inequality. On the other hand, we can look at this moment as an opportunity to reduce inequality. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the EdTech Podcast. This week, we are back with our What Matters in EdTech Global series, this time chatting to BETS Global Education Council, spanning four time zones as we get to grips with the Council's manifesto set in January 2020, and the way that COVID has impacted the manifesto ideals and how urgently they are implemented. In this episode, chaired by Jose Papa, Eric Abrams, the Chief Inclusion Officer at Stanford University Graduate School of Education, Ilsa Howling, the Chair for Education Development Trust, Dr. Ger Graus, Global Director of Education for Kidzania, and Paolo De Santo, the Education Lead for EMEA for HP, are all in conversation reflecting on how the pause given by the pandemic has created an opportunity to think about how we might teach back better. How can we take this moment to be more expansive about how we think about education, teaching and learning? And how can we ensure quality across multiple tech platforms that attempt to support in this moment? This series is all about the things that matter in education and how and when tech might help. A big shout out to BET for supporting this series, HP for supporting this episode, and to our fantastic guests for making this conversation so insightful. Here we go. Wonderful. Thank you, Sophie. So, guys, first of all, thank you so much, okay? As always, uh, the contribution, your vision is is of fundamental importance for our journey as we set uh, the, the Global Education Council vision, okay? So, uh, we, we at BET, uh, we are a global showcase of uh, technology in education. We are the single most relevant platform that brings together experts from around the world to share ideas, debate some of the biggest challenges facing educators. We are bringing together vendors, buyers from across the globe with the biggest education systems and solutions and with this vision of how technology impacts education and defines the future of global education. So when we, when we set the Global Education Council, we had as an objective uh, bringing together the biggest minds, the biggest ideas, and with a, an amazingly important brand like BET to ultimately collaborate together and, and share knowledge and this intellectual capital for the betterment of, of education and of society as a whole, because ultimately uh, education is the cornerstone of the future. So it, it ultimately defines uh, everything. It defines the future of generations. It defines the future of, of, of us as, as, as a society. So we are challenging ourselves now, uh, given the circumstances of COVID, to ultimately land many of the ideas that we have set within the manifesto. Uh, thus why we are trying to instill a debate here to, again, articulate collaborations, bring together initiatives, articulate partnerships, 
articulate ideas and connections that will ultimately lend uh, a hand to support uh, what the future of education is. So I'd like to welcome uh, all of these incredible minds to ultimately take part of this amazing initiative, the EdTech Podcast, to share a piece because I've been challenging this group for us to distill uh, the ideas that we should try to, to harbor within respective regions in the world that will make uh, the various uh, education initiatives progress. So I would like to welcome uh, Ilse Holling. Uh, she is the chairman uh, of the Education Development Trust. Uh, I would like to also welcome Eric Abrams, the Chief Inclusion Officer of Stanford University Graduate School of Education. I would like to welcome Dr. Ger Graus, the Global Director of Education at Kidzania. And I would like to finally welcome Paulo Dal Santo, uh, the HP Education Lead for EMEA. So thank you so much for taking the time, for uh, lending us your, your vision, your knowledge, your critique on, on such, a, such an important moment in our history. Because when we decided at BET to launch our Global Education Council, we, we were not expecting that we would be challenged with probably one of the greatest moments in, in at least history for the last hundred years and the profound impact it would have on all circumstances of life, but especially on education. After the introductions, Jose then kicked off the discussion by asking Paolo from HP, a guest to the council, which manifesto points resonated with HP's reaction to COVID. Here they talk about manifesto point seven, partnership is vital. So thank you for having me on uh, on this podcast. Um, I was referring back to the manifesto for the 10 points manifesto, which is uh, um, a very interesting areas to focus. And what we realize in the last three to six months, you talk about uh, the changes and the impact on COVID, especially on collaboration. I was mentioning that the work HP has been doing and the request we're getting more and more from um, NGOs, from United Nations organization we collaborate is really to work together to address this issue because every government, I mean, and every community we have seen, whatever is in Europe or Middle East or Africa, were mostly not prepared. And um, the, the the interesting area was really to to see that no matter which geography or Western Europe or developing country or other geography, none of them were really ready. So the request we are now getting more and more, it's a collaboration. That's why your point seven on the manifesto is really perfectly uh, focused on what's the need now on skills, skills development, but also how blending technology, not just the solutions, not just the hardware, but the curriculum, the training of the teachers and the collaboration of existing platform that every organization from UNIDO, UNICEF, uh, UNACR from refugees, everybody's focused on this. So a kind of collaboration was really pushed into a kind of hyperdrive in the last uh, six months, and it pushed everyone as well to transform into this area of, uh, of new learning, remote learning, hybrid learning. So that's, that's probably one of the biggest uh, discovery we made uh, as HP. So really, 
not not ready institution at any level in any geography and then this private sector which had some technology hints and we are working together with this organization that's that's probably one of the side uh, positive side effect out of this uh, really difficult time Jose. when we talk about a positive side effect which obviously given the circumstances of the immediate sanitary challenges and the economic hurdles uh, when we talk about extremely challenging times uh, yourself uh, how, how do you see us when we talk about and, and you mentioned the partnership being vital given our seventh item of the manifesto how are you actually articulating what are the ideas that you are immediately engaged that through collaboration you could intertwine other regions in the country and you could um, immediately make applicable to the development of initiatives that are needed just now i think hp had a kind of long standing approach to um, learning and learning outcome but the focus we had i would even say until december january we even presented one of these initiative at bet this year was really to help communities transform learning in a face to face environment and this was really working with uh, uh, having spaces learning spaces classroom or areas where you can actually work and collaborate together so what we have done to actually transform everything we had done for a face to face physical environment from software solution curriculum connectivity it, we took roughly three months but now the majority of our curriculum based where we support countries or we do through uh, some non profit or foundation are now delivered directly online and hp has opened up all the network of partners which work with us including um big other corporation like microsoft or google or intel or amd to use the reach of our partners to reach schools teachers and institution that actually uh, they were not left alone but not ready so this kind of immediate transformation from a face to face physical content training and delivery into a full virtual this has been the changes and the, the the kind of support we have been giving and again the focus was not a sales proposition but really an emergency help through the organization we are working with with content technology connectivity and again uh, partnership because every organization faced the same in every geography where we are working with so it was really converted remote classroom uh, curriculum that was only local uh, even setting up instances of uh, solutions whatever you're using in your classroom today or in your in your region help doing this and it was done through hp volunteers partners supporting us and adding others organization as well this is today i would say half of the work hp 50% of the work we have been doing it's really focused on this thank you paolo uh ger your vision because paolo he touched on so many points that are fundamental to kidzenia's uh, strategic view across the globe so we talk about uh, curricula we talk about experiences that are tangible so liveable experiences we talk about the impact of uh, the digital evolution uh, we talk about what is expected for uh, how to prepare the youth of the future and 
primarily now given the circumstances of what we are experiencing and the articulation with governments, with NGOs. So uh, upon this perspective, what are you experiencing given the circumstances of what we are living now? Uh, thanks, Jose. It's, it's, it's great, as always, to be with everyone um, and, and to listen, really. So our experiences are, are manifold, really. And, and the longer this goes on, and the more I talk with people in the 20 or so countries where we are, uh, the clearer a number of things become. I think one of the things that one of the things that is very clear is that some of the decisions we made in the past are now paying dividend. Uh, i.e. we decided seven, eight years ago that one of the things we needed to do very clearly as a, an experience-based learning uh, um, facility that, that connects in-school teaching with out-of-school learning so that children can write their own narrative of the possible and, and see and see purpose. Uh, the decision that we made to work very closely with schools and with teachers um, all kinds of schools, all kinds of ages, and uh, all kinds of backgrounds and contexts is one that, that was the right decision. So we're picking up and we're analysing as part of that partnership and we're moving forward as part of that partnership. I think on the other hand, it's also shown a number of lights um, that are uncomfortable and, and perhaps not so positive. A light that's shown, for example, is that that we are in our online presence not very good and that we need to be much more purposeful and essentially we almost in my view need to create another Kidzania uh, franchise that is almost Kidzania World Online which allows children and families and schools to remain engaged uh, purposefully fun but also allows access for those young people who can't easily visit the Kidzania. Um, and then, really, a couple of other quick ones, if I may. One is, um, there's a clear issue for me in talking to schools, that there is a, there's a difference, I think, between online delivery and online receiving. And that, that is much harder for younger children. I do some work with, with radio children in northern Italy, for example. It is much harder to do this for younger children than it is for 12, 13, 14 plus. As an, as an observation, that the roles of schools, particularly elementary schools, primary schools, remains critical. And actually that schools have become much more of a focus in the community and, and have almost got that kind of Barcelona football club thing, you know, Mesco and club more than a club, and, and schools are more than a school. I think that the issue is personal, and in my view, we're talking a great deal about systems and structures and curricula, but these issues are personal for parents, for teachers, and for children. And a final observation is in our work with, um, with lots of industry partners, over 900 industry partners globally, where in the past, the focus for these industry partners may well have been on return on investment, and much of that partnership may have been funded through marketing and PR budgets, the, the language around that appears to be changing to return on involvement and actually wanting to be involved because of the impact that they can make. And that kind of goes in line with the findings of the Edelman 
a trust barometer report of a few weeks ago, which is which is worth reading. So, so it's a hodgepodge of findings, but there's a comfort to be had in that. And I think, Jose, the same applies to the manifesto, to our manifesto as BET. If, if I look at um, all the priorities that we had as Kidzania globally, I don't think that they've changed. I think that the order and the urgency of some has changed significantly. And if I reflect on, on the manifesto, because we've kind of got to remember that, that the BET manifesto in many ways uh, came about before COVID, and I look at the priorities, then again, I don't think that you would change any of those priorities. I think, I think a few of them, uh, uh, a few of them may uh, be more important or more urgent now. And so I take some comfort from that, that we're not completely down the wrong path, but actually we will manage this and we have an opportunity to manage this well and press the reset button with, with some confidence, I think. Thank you, Ger. Uh, the mere cornerstone of Kidzania's vision is to ultimately support the development of children and define a future with perspective. So uh, if we go to uh, our third item within our manifesto, we've said that, uh, that we must support vulnerable children and communities who do not have equitable access to education to reduce the widening equity gap. And uh, I think this is a, a, a perfect point of discussion here for ILSI. The vision of our, our, our education council, okay? What can we define together collectively as a group to ultimately deliver upon such support? And what are you engaged today with uh, in terms of articulation also and initiatives that deliver upon such, such point in our manifesto, ILSI? Thanks, Jose, and that's a, an absolutely lovely um, question to, to think about. And um, Education Development Trust, as you know, our mission is uh, to bring about transformation through education uh, and to do that uh, globally. We work in many countries around the world, so from Rwanda to Brunei to schools in inner London. Um, and as you can imagine, um, that, that goal is absolutely uppermost in what we do, and it's there at the top of uh, the BET, Global Education Council's manifesto. So fantastic to see it. Um, you've put your finger on something, though, with that point three around the support for vulnerable children and communities uh, that I think um, COVID has... There may yet, COVID in, arguably is wreaking disaster, uh, and yet there are, it, it's exposing and bringing to light uh, opportunities. So the sense in which Education Development Trust's vision of how do we respond to and handle COVID, uh, I guess we'd encapsulate in a phrase around teach back better. Um, and that thinking, everybody who's familiar with international development will know the build back better phraseology uh, from the development world. Uh, but that teach back better piece, what COVID has done is to not just expose inequality, but accentuate inequality. So, for example, we're working in Kenya. One of our big programs is the Girls Education Challenge. 
getting girls who otherwise would leave education. Some of them have already in their teens had children. Uh, and how do we get them into education so that they stay and they complete 12 years of education? And, and the drain that COVID is having of pulling girls and boys back out of school uh, at, with huge priority around earning money, that's a real challenge to education and, and critical um, real pan-community efforts. As Gare was saying, the school is at the heart of the community. How do you mobilise schools to help bring uh, girls back into school? The other thing I think we would observe, and this is true again from uh, high-income countries, middle-income countries, low-income countries, the sense in which COVID has been an accelerator of change. Um, I speak not just as Chair of Education Development um, Trust, but also myself personally as a teacher, uh, part-time teacher in British government uh, state school, uh, and the, uh, my background is media. And yet, even I have this sense of, oh, I, I know media, but my accelerated experience of teaching classes through Teams, through Zoom, uh, and, and as Gare pointed out, watching that sense of digital natives, the children on the receiving end of it, and how they respond to that. So that's hugely important, that the sense in which COVID has catapulted change. And then critically, I think our third area at Education Development Trust would be around teacher presence. Uh, and that's as critical for vulnerable children in whatever income setting they are sitting in. Uh, so that piece uh, in the UK, uh, in developed world, it will be about using online. In Rwanda, we've been using radio very effectively to meet people, to, to talk to um, students, using television, uh, teacher training, using SIM cards sent out to people so that they've got an SD card uh, with um, interactive um, material on it. So it's blended learning across a real scale of technologies, not just from the highest tech, but also using the lowest tech uh, to try to make sure no one is left behind. Uh, and as children come back, we know we've had more than, what is it, 1.6 billion children suddenly out of school. How we support the return into school so that children come back, that they can learn better, that they can be taught better, and critically that teachers receive the kind of training, the personal development support, the, the support with just having an open, adaptive mindset. Um, I think all of that uh, is at the heart of our thinking and the kind of research we're doing and making freely available, um, whether that some of that is commissioned by uh, global institutions, the World Bank, uh, but also some that we've supported ourselves and it's available for everybody to benefit from on our website. You, you have mentioned uh, what we believe to be a, a critical piece of the education puzzle for the future, which is teachers' training. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we go to the ninth item of our manifesto, we say that uh, teachers have a vital role and their contribution is more important than ever. And by investing in the skills and systems to support them with a learning-focused, adaptive mindset, we are defining it as a must-be top priority. Absolutely. So to that point, 
uh, Eric, given you are today sitting in the middle and in the heart of, and very close to probably the most brilliant minds in the world around the, the evolution of technology and how it intersects with educational systems. And ultimately, it would be great to see your vision on how teachers are adapting they were already adapting their methodologies and way of uh, engaging uh, the youth of tomorrow. But after what happened with COVID and after now the exponential evolution of technology in a mere three months, how is, how is your view now and what is the experience coming from the heart of the evolution and the future of, of technology in the world? Thank you for that question, Jose. Um, and as others have said, it's really wonderful to be here with everyone and, and, and reconnect. I think that teachers um, on an individual level and, and as a group have done an, an amazing job of adapting in a hurry. You know, uh, here in the States, schools often close with less than a week of notice. Um, teachers pivoted very quickly at every level, um, from kindergarten through the university level, uh, to adapt their lessons plans to Zoom, to figure out ways to work with kids individually and in groups and in small teams. The challenge is um, that even you know, here uh, uh, near Silicon Valley in one of the wealthiest countries that has ever existed, we have an enormous digital divide. Um, a report just a couple of weeks ago from the Boston Consulting Group indicated that over 400,000 teachers in the United States lack adequate internet access to deliver online lessons. Um, some 15 to 16 million students don't have the, the sort of internet access or computing resources at home um, to learn effectively online. So even though we've seen an incredible effort from, from teachers, from schools, from school districts um, to transform the way that students are educated, there's an enormous number of students who are left behind and, and that is, or being left behind. And that is my largest concern right now. Uh, Paulo, to that point, uh, given that we have as our fifth item within the manifesto, the universal access to technology, uh, we mentioned that it should be part of every child's right to education to ultimately have such universal access. What are the, the initiatives that HP could envision that would ultimately, and going back to your point on partnership being vital and the collaboration with governments and, and NGOs, etc., what can you within HP and actually demanding from this group here, what can we do effectively to serve as a lever here to make this uh, universal access to technology something that we can truly deliver as part of uh, every child's right to education? Thank you, Jose, for the very interesting question. So universal access to technology for children is an area where HP has focused its effort in the last years. And there are two initiatives which are, I would say, very relevant and where HP is really proud to have contributed to. So the first one is an uh, alliance with the Clowney Foundation and, uh, and it is to focus on Syrian refugees and especially on children who actually had to leave uh, their home and their places 
from the civil war in 2012. Um, and actually, they had to interrupt completely all their uh, school years and, and, and learning. So what HP has done together with the um, Clowning Foundation is to support them creating learning studio and opportunities for learning uh, also in refugee camp on the border in Lebanon and Jordan. Uh, the quality of the curriculum, the technology used, uh, the teaching and the possibility to connect remotely as well with other classrooms across the globe is one of the good examples of technology and help that technology can bring into learning to all kids. The second one, it's another project we HP run with uh, the United Nations organization called UNIDO, and it's called Mashrui. It's a project where HP has provided for free the content of HP Life, which is uh, uh, online courses for entrepreneurs. And these courses are actually focused on gaining new skills that will allow you as an entrepreneur or out of job or actually somebody who wants to create his own journey in learning and creating a business, all the capability to do so. Uh, marketing material, marketing training, how to create a balance sheet, how to define cost of your products. And again, technology plays an important role because it eliminates the distance and the space and helps these communities to learn more. So again, um, universal access to uh, technology for education are two areas or two possibilities where HP is really contributing to. Just say, if I, if I may, just to build on what Eric has said, because he's absolutely right that the huge uh, inequality in terms of um, technology provision, uh, it's incredibly dangerous to assume that just because uh, you have a high-income country, that that country uh, will have teachers and students who are well-equipped and can instantly migrate to learning online. Uh, and you know, speaking as a teacher in a very affluent part of the UK, uh, I had out of the 30 students I was teaching, actually two of them had no internet access. Uh, and so the challenge then of how do you use other ways of keeping that teacher presence in those children's lives, uh, and that's in the UK. Uh, and if you take that across parts of sub-Saharan Africa, um, there's a sense in which that even if in some of the cities the internet provision is high, actually out in the rural communities, it's a huge challenge. So thinking really creatively around how to use different media um, to deliver lessons remotely is something that in those regions they've been doing for many years. And you can research what works best. Uh, and the crucial thing that comes out in whatever the context is keeping a teacher's presence going uh, and, and there as something meaningful in the lives of the children who are studying. Can I just very briefly echo that? And, and I, think, I think one of the things that we have to do as part of the dialogue is to engage with the people, i.e. the schools, again, schools at the hearts of communities, that know their children and their circumstances best because solutions are often not arrived at from a distance but they are arrived at from knowing what works locally. And I think, I think the inclusion of that voice and that dialogue is, is going to be absolutely key. Thanks. Absolutely.
And uh, I'm going to put a I'm going to put a more controversial uh, discussion here, and we could discuss among the three of you, uh, because uh, Ger, you have uh, the visibility of what vocational development and training means, because ultimately what Kidzenia does it goes to the heart of trying to nurture vocations to prepare for jobs of the future. And, and Ilse and Eric, do you believe that given the circumstances of what happened the past four months, that traditional schooling methods will be challenged aggressively and that the vision of us trying to nurture vocations from early childhood is something as an alternative path for the future of education? I think I think it's a very it's a very interesting question. Uh, what I observe, and, and we have to remember, it's kind of part of this is early days. What I observe and what I fear a little bit is that at the moment we're in a in a mode and mindset, or there seems to be a mode and mindset that is about um, that is about catch up, that is about safety, that feels quite risk averse and fearful. So, so it's becoming very narrow. And many of the things that, that you've just mentioned, Jose, are about experiences, calculated risk and going out and the confidence to do so. And I think one of the things that we need to be as educators, all educators, very mindful of is that, that what is required is calculated risk and courage in order to, to fulfill that part of the agenda. Otherwise, we may well have a generation of children that will be schooled in an environment that's so narrow that it's that it's quite terrifying. So, so the, the need for partnership with all sorts of organisations that function outside the school but can make the meaningful connect, call it vocational, call it skills-based, or call it awe and wonder for that matter, um, is going to be absolutely key. And that the teachers become the facilitators of that type of learning. Yeah, I, You'll see. I, I, I yeah. would build on that. I, I think you're absolutely right, Gare. Uh, and I think there's the sense of, um, and this is my point about the, the COVID as the accelerator of change. I don't think we're going to go back to an old normal. I think the frontiers of what's normal are being pushed forward. Uh, and I think we'll see that across all sorts of global educational contexts. I think this is a real springboard for change. Uh, and, and thinking around how do you equip teachers and students to make the very best of blended learning approaches using whichever technology is relevant for them. Um, and in parallel with that, recognizing that um, actually education, we're, we're striving for something. We want quality, we want excellence. How we evolve our ways uh, in the education world of understanding what is high quality and ensuring that that quality assurance can translate across whichever technical platform uh, lessons are being delivered through. I think we're really at baby steps in that so far. Uh, multiple um, education and inspection regimes around the world are in a kind of pause moment. Um, and how we ensure that as we emerge into uh, that teach back better world, how are we uplifting ambitions uh, and ensuring that we are really doing the best 
by our children and future generations coming through. Uh, and it, just one last thought on this. It, it may not have been there specifically in your question, but that sense of how do you, uh, in a world that may be fo- facing perhaps its worst ever economic crisis globally, how do you equip people to retrain, to reskill uh, well beyond their school years, but actually ensuring that people go on and have the kind of skills and abilities and access to skills that will give them the ability to have a livelihood uh, and go on and have successful lives. I think that whole piece of careers uh, and development is hugely important as we think post-COVID. Ilza, do, Ilza, yeah. do, 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 sorry, do you think that, that part of what you mentioned, I'm, I'm very fascinated by this, do you think that we should redefine certain terminologies, i.e. if I think of Ofsted, for example, should, should we redefine what we mean by an outstanding school? I think the opportunity for me, the opportunity is there, and maybe this comes out of out part of the of the work that comes out of that that group. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think as we know in the UK, Ofsted have said that they want they're aiming to start schools inspection again from January, uh, and the question of how do they do that, uh, and none, no one yet knows. Is that in a lockdown context? Is it in a completely uh, everybody back uh, and almost like the old world way. Uh, And those pieces, all that thinking needs to be done. Uh, And it's vital that it's research-based and it's vital that it's taking into account the thoughts of the teachers and the students who are right on the front line of receiving and delivering it. And uh, when you mention re-equip and retrain, uh, I, I think that uh, Eric, uh, it is, it, it would be quite interesting to understand when you sit and you discuss the long-term vision, the strategic vision for a place like Stanford. How would you then prepare your statement uh, around re-equipping and preparing again the generation for the future? So, because we are. We are experiencing a, a moment in time, as Ilse rightly said, that is so unique and, and so transformative that you had to redefine what a mission statement for, uh, for an organization is very fast. So what are the discussions that are happening now at Stanford in terms of how do you set the vision for a, for, for a future that nobody knows and nobody can foresee because we are experiencing so Uh, such a tumultuous time? We're trying to figure that out. (laughs) I think that, uh, you know... uh, Answers on a postcard. Yes. In a a serious vein, um, you know, faculty, doctoral students, um, master students are are thinking about these issues um, constantly. The the education industry globally, and, and, and certainly within the United States, has been completely disrupted, um, not only by COVID, um, but by the, the, the Black Lives Movement and protests after the, the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and, and far too many others. Um, we're really spending a lot of time thinking about multiple things at once. Um, in terms of the future of education in general, I think one thing we think a lot about is how do we prepare both you know, the next generation of teachers and coming generations of students, how to continually learn. 
Um, this is something that many, many people have talked about for decades. It's, it's not new, but the days of walking across the stage, getting a diploma, and that being the end of your education have been over for a long time. We've, we've got to figure out how to train people to constantly learn throughout their lives and to equip teachers to prepare students to constantly learn throughout their lives. By the same token, I think that we're seeing a real uh, sort of reckoning around we talk about issues of, of social and community justice in the classroom. And that is obviously enormously controversial in a country like this that has, you know, 300 million people and about 400 million opinions on any particular subject. Um, different school districts, different states, um, um, different organizations have really looked at these differently. But I think there is a consensus, um, or at least a growing consensus, around the importance of if nothing else, teaching children critical thinking skills and helping them come to make their own decisions and, and what's real and what's not real when they uh, consume media, for example. Eric, it is obviously highly unfortunate that we are discussing a global conscious now around so many issues. You mentioned uh, the racial discussion. You mentioned, obviously, covid uh, uh, what, what is then the, the positive stance that we collectively can take uh, to make uh, this uh, the tragedy of what happened with George Floyd, uh, the tragedy of the thousands of deaths from COVID? So what, what are the, the positive points that we can articulate as a group and and from the experience you've been you've been having within Stanford? Uh, how can we articulate a message that ultimately delivers a, a positive expectation for the future and primarily setting this the founding stone of education being this lever for the future? I think that that uh, message, Jose, is really around the question. Um, and what is the future that we want? Do we want a future with, with greater inequality? Because, you know, we know how to get there. We know how to create greater inequality. And we're actually pretty good at it. And we can continue doing what we've done for the last how many years and, and create a society um, inside of countries and globally that has even greater inequality. On the other hand, we can look at this moment as an opportunity to reduce inequality. We can look at this moment to really think deeply and, and look inward. And I don't know that necessarily mean just as, as organizations and societies, but I also mean as individuals. And to think about what sort of society we want, what we want for our children, what we want for future generations. And if we want to reduce inequality, I actually think we know how to do that too. And I think that we know the steps that, that we can take to reduce inequality in educational systems. The question is, do we have the political will to do so? And I'd like to believe that we do. And, and, and how, and Ilse uh, and, and, and Ger talking about uh, the, the point on political will, how can we manifest and articulate and pressure uh, the political movements in a way that doesn't look uh, hypocritical in terms of what we expect the outcome to be? Uh, because we, 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 we need uh, to understand, as Paulo mentioned, uh, the collaboration between governments, etc. But we know how challenging it is uh, when we put politics uh, around uh, how we articulate uh, initiatives that are tangible, that are material, and that are really changing the environment and the landscape for uh, the future. So how, how can we articulate 
uh, these relationships in a positive way on the political side? I think I think the, it's a very it's a very difficult question, right? And I think uh, and I think the um, the the answer lies partly in values and principles, but and that's, and I think it'll vary from country to country, and in some countries that will be easier to achieve than in others. But by and large, we need to look at making, and I know this this has been said so many times over such a long period. We need to make the child stroke the learner, the center and their future, the center of our attention. And we need to, in the nicest possible way, force that agenda. Secondly, we need to create the partnerships around that, be they NGOs, be they government, uh, uh, be they private sector, to make that happen. And and uh, and thirdly, uh, uh, I think we, we then need to look at um, an evidence-based approach, continually an evidence-based approach, because you can only truly convince people to join you on a march if you can evidence that you're walking the right way. Now, all these things are much easier said than achieved. So we need to look for small examples and big examples and pilots and whatever we call them, but we need to collect the evidence after we've agreed, or maybe even at the same time, that we articulate what we want and who our initial uh, uh, partners are. This is not about policy, I think. I think this is about vision, values and principles, and it's about a movement. And I think that's harder than policy. And, and that's the biggest challenge, because how you intertwine uh, policy making with the actual needs we have. And we know that policymaking depends on a lot of political articulation. And, and so that's my, my question and my anxiety on how we intertwine all elements of private sectors, uh, initiatives that ultimately do generate value, so organizations, companies uh, that, that ultimately need to, to, that have shareholders, et cetera, with the needs we have to ultimately uh, develop a better society to Eric's point. So how we intertwine all of this, that, that's, the, that's the challenge and how we articulate this the right way. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think that the sense in which, I mean, it's, it's there at the heart of the Global Education Council manifesto. Uh, transformation in education is possible. It starts with the belief that everyone has that potential to learn. And we know uh, of the few levers that as a species we have to pull to reduce inequality, education is perhaps the most powerful. Uh, so again, being an optimist, if you combine the galvanizing impact that's going to come from COVID and the, the exposure acceleration of inequality, we have to set our stall by a belief that education uh, and this piece about teach back better and getting education continually improving is key to human progress. Uh, and I think you can see it across all the work uh, that education development just does in so many different countries, working with communities, with governments, with local people um, and, and with commercial operators uh, mobilizing those parties in service of education uh, and of technology in support of education, whatever form that technology takes. 
And it's there in our manifesto. We've said very clearly in our manifesto, universal access to technology should be part of every child's right to education. And I think that's fantastic. Clearly, they need, there's a hierarchy of needs. They must have access to water, to food, but pretty high up after that comes education and comes technology enabled education. So that clarion call, and you can see how governments around the world have responded to it. So the sense of if education can do its part, it is the greatest accelerator of equality. Uh, so I'm going to set a challenge to all of us, you'll see, because when we defined uh, the pillar of the Global Education Council, we were expecting to use uh, a global brand like BET with uh, a social conscious, with a, with a mindset that ultimately is of developing initiatives that will collaborate to the greater good. It's not just an initiative that ultimately brings buyers and vendors. This is a, a brand that ultimately has a mission and a purpose. So how can we challenge ourselves to take the manifesto into practice? So how can we take the words from the manifesto and make them, uh, make them truly work? So how, what, what is the commitment that we as a group, how can we articulate such commitment in a way that we can within our regions because we have uh, global leaders that ultimately have impact within a number of geographies across the globe. How can we, by using the, the, the brand's uh, awareness, how can we articulate and impact the right way? What are the commitments we can make as a group? I think if I may, uh, if I may, Jose, I think some of that, um, if we don't overcomplicate things, then, then, and I may, if I may use this as an example, I, I mentioned earlier that in, in terms of our discussions with partners, industry partners, for example, that there's a very evident shift from return on investment to return on involvement. Now, I could, I could see myself with my colleagues anywhere in the world sitting down with our industry partners and having in front of me this manifesto as part of the educational dialogue of Kidzania, be that in Chicago, in Sao Paulo, in London, wherever. Because if there is a true shift, as I suspect there is, towards return on involvement, i.e. companies becoming involved because they want to make an impact, then this document, for my discussions, and very pragmatically, is a very good starting point. So I can do this relatively straightforwardly, and to some companies, some of this, or some partners, some, some of the points may be more relevant than others, but nobody can deny any of them. So in that sense, I'd be perfectly happy to embed them here and now. This is, uh, this is great, Ger, because it's something very similar to what I've done here in Brazil. Because by ha engaging the relationships we have with top brands, top vendors, we were able to articulate initiatives where they can, through their networks, collaborate effectively where, uh, where initiatives are needed. So from hardware uh, offerings to uh, uh, educational systems that need to be propelled and need to be uh, acknowledged. So we are, we are trying to nurture uh, relationships that ultimately will have an impact 
uh, for uh, delivering the vision that we have set to universal access. So to, to the, 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 mo the, the more universal access possible, okay, uh, to education. So, uh, so thank you so much because this is a tangible way of us uh, pushing forward our, our, our mission and our, our objective here with the council. I think it's wonderful to take steps toward universal access um, as organizations, um, as NGOs, as policymakers. Um, the thing that I'm concerned about is actually much more on the micro level. It's, it's the inequality that's reinforced by individual decisions made by parents and families. Everyone wants to give their kids an advantage. Everyone wants to give their kids a leg up. I certainly, you know, when my kids were young, that was certainly part of my mindset. But in this post-COVID era, one of the things that I'm seeing is, is the opportunity for a trend to greater inequality and, and, and based on individual decisions. And let me give you one example. Um, we've seen an enormous, uh, uh, not even increased, an explosion in the number of affluent and, and, and professional families who have children who want to hire university students, graduate students or undergrads, but often graduate students to kind of be, uh, to, to sit with their kids as they're taking their lessons on Zoom, to join their classes and to provide extra tutoring for, for these children. Now, if you're that child, that's wonderful and that might really help you stay connected. But when you do that writ large across the society, all it does is increase inequality. Um, and Again, we've got enough inequality in the world. We don't need to do things that, that increase it. But I see decisions by individual families as something that can increase inequality. So what I, Jose, you, you, you started this part of the conversation with a challenge, and I kind of want to turn that back. I think I want to challenge a lot of, of people, anyone who's listening out there, to think about how their individual decisions affect inequality. Yeah, that was beautifully said. And and the, this piece about inequality and accentuation of inequality is so crucial. Um, I mean, in terms of what Education Development Trust does, we, we've had a line that we've talked about for many years and it becomes all the more um, valuable now is around the bright spots of education and, and our role that we can shine a light on those bright spots wherever they're happening around the world. So understanding the case studies of individual girls in Kenya who have been persuaded to come back into school after they've had a baby, after their families are expecting them no longer to be in school, working with community leaders so that they see the role and the value of education in those girls' lives. That's just a tiny microcosm of the kind of work that we can do um, to redress inequality. And, and I think crucial is that piece of seeing schools and teachers and leadership and development of the people in those schools as central to everything we're trying to achieve. That, that piece about teacher presence and teachers going on having a role uh, in transforming people's lives equipped with technology and the full power of society behind them. I think, I think I, I totally agree. And I think on the other hand, uh, we, we might also want to think about communities and redefining some communities and some purposes. And very simplistically put, let me give you a, an example. So to Eric's point, 
one, I think it, it would be very hard to stop the parent uh, uh, looking looking after their kids, right? And and and, that's, and and I get I understand it from both sides, um, but I think there might be an issue really simplistically. And I look at London, for example, or I look at Sheffield, where I live, uh, where you have schools and everything is relative. I understand, but you, you have schools that are seriously disadvantaged. And, and where, where those kind of parents might not exist, okay? Or might not know how to access that level of support. Now, there is nothing to say that you then begin to look at different communities in terms of an, uh, an independent state school partnership, whereby local schools, to, to uh, in a sense, borrow the alumni from independent schools as part of a partnership to recreate in a different way that kind of role model, that kind of provision, and that kind of an advice. In the UK, or certainly in England, all independent schools are charities. So they have to behave like one. And, and instead of writing a cheque or offering a bursary, they might, they might lend them their alumni. I think that level of very pragmatic creativity at local level will chip away at some of that. This is not the total solution, but I think we need to think like creating different communities for different purposes. Thanks so much to our guests this week and for the rallying call to making change happen. So yourself as an audience of this podcast, you can challenge us, bring your ideas, tell me an initiative that is interesting within your region that we could use our, our breath and we could use the voice that we have here in this council to ultimately uh, deliver the message. So uh, use us as a tool. Some of my personal takeaways were the idea of teaching back better, the challenge to be more adventurous in our return to education than simply catching up, the importance of ensuring quality and impact across the variety of technological platforms out there, especially when we think about inequality in technical systems, a challenge to the tech sector to come up with creative ideas that proactively reduce educational inequality, the point on the role of brands in popularising teaching and learning, and the importance of individual awareness in challenging decisions which continue inequality. Before we go, a few messages from our community. First up, do you remember when musical creative legend Imogen Heap was on the podcast talking about her magical musical mitten? Well, here's Amanda Brock, the Open UK CEO, talking about their kids' competition, where Imogen Heap is also a VIP judge. This competition involves 3,000 mini Mew glove kits powered by the BBC Microbit. And in the competition, kids have to make up the glove kit and participate in a 10-week course of animated lessons where they talk about what they want to do with the open source technology. So to find out more, listen to Amanda here. Thanks very much for the opportunity of telling your audience about the Open UK Digital Kids Camp taking place this summer through Open UK. The Kids Camp will run through August with 10 exciting animated lessons narrated by voiceover artist Steph Bauer and drawn by Matt Buck of Journalism. The lessons are, of course, a great way for your kids to learn to code and improve their digital skills while still having fun. To take part in the lessons, your kids will need to have a mini Moo glove kit, and we're very excited to have 3,000 of those kits to give away. Yep, 3,000 kits, which can be used with your own microbit, USB and battery pack. 
If you need to get hold of a battery pack or a microbit in USB, you can do that from Pimeroni and you can access that via our website, openuk.uk slash openkidscamp. You'll also be able to borrow microbits from your local library if you need to. The Open UK Kids Camp doesn't require any registration. You just need to come back to our website in August, openuk.uk slash openkidscamp, and you'll have more information available to you on both our e-zine and our course. Yep, we have an e-zine to accompany every lesson in the course, and that's got fantastic contributions from Femi, our teenage influencer, and an array of well-known figures across open source. The Digital Kids Camp won't just teach your kids to code, it will also teach them about open source, an essential tool for them if they want to have a future in tech, because open source really is the future of technology. The glove kit being distributed has been specially designed for Open UK by Pimeroni using the Minimoo glove kit. And the glove kit is available free of charge to the first 3,000 people to register, so make sure you register quickly, thanks to the sponsorship of Huawei. We have social media, Snapchat, Facebook and Twitter, as well as Instagram, available to your kids if they want to interact with other kids taking part throughout August and beyond. But we will not require any registrations in true open source style. Of course, we're sharing everything Creative Commons, so it's free for you to use and share with other people. And we hope you'll enjoy it. So make sure you register quickly if you want a free glove kit and come back to openuk.uk slash openkidscamp in August to be able to download your e-zines and get access to the 10 lessons. Take this opportunity to get your kids coding this summer and create digital inclusion and enhance your kids' digital skills with the Open UK Kids Camp. Have fun. Thank you, Amanda. Um, also on our listener voicemail, here's Sunera talking about an Esperanza uh, EdTech Accelerator. Are you an EdTech startup looking for growth opportunities in Asia? Join us to learn about the inaugural Adventures Global Business Acceleration Fellowship. The fellowship will select 12 high potential entrants to join a series of virtual activities and an all expenses paid trip to Hong Kong and two neighboring cities in southern China. These 12 fellows will be connected with potential investors, localization partners, and customers in education and corporate learning. The Adventures GBA Fellowship is organized by Esperanza, a Hong Kong-based NGO founded by Mr. John Sang, the former financial secretary for the Hong Kong government. So you can find out more about this at uh, Ed Ventures, that's E-D Ventures, GBA, edventuresgba.com. So thanks for the voicemails this week, everyone. I would also encourage those of you who haven't yet seen the Council Manifesto on the BET website to do so. Um, the Manifesto points cover everything from inclusion to schools as communities and leads with the point one that global radical transformation in education is possible and it starts with the belief that everyone has the potential to learn. Thanks again to BET for supporting this series and HP for supporting this episode. We'd love to hear from you. Tweet us using the hashtag EdTechPod and hashtag BET2021 for all the show notes, including resource and reading recommendations from our guests. It's the EdTechPodcast.com. And for more content, check out the BET website where you can find out more about how to stay connected with the community. That's all for now. Have a great week. Bye bye.